You know, as we come to God's word this morning, I thank the Lord that we get to come to a word that is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. This is a word that is God-breathed. God wants to address us this morning from his word. And I am so thrilled that as we gather around his word, we know that we are going to be addressed by God. That's what makes this the favorite part of a, of a morning. Not primarily because some guy gets up there and talks. It's our favorite part because we're expounding the word of God. God himself is addressing us. And so if you want a title for this morning's message, I've got it, The Inseparable Lesson Concludes. And we're going to read from verse 19 to 31. And this is the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should even rise from the dead. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you are addressing us this morning. I thank you that this word is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. I thank you that in the midst of life's many distractions, we get to pause right now and be addressed by you. Oh Lord, help us to be attentive. Help us to not be distracted. Help us to lean in and have ears to hear and a heart to learn. And may our lives be changed as a result. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, there are some things in life that are just totally inseparable. For example, Andrew Lung and KFC. There are some things in life that just go together and you know they are a match made in heaven. There are other things, toast and jam, chips and salt, bangers and mash. As an English guy, what a happy moment that is. People like Laurel and Hardy, Tom and Jerry, for the younger members, Elsa and Anna. Things like mosquitoes and nets, rain and rainbows, parties and dancing, left and right, sweet and salty, day and night. 
There are some things in life that always inseparably go together. And as Jesus sits us down here and addresses us, finishing off in many ways, a message series that he started right at the start of 16 verse 1, when he starts to engage the disciples about the wisdom of generosity. As Jesus now lands that whole teaching, there's something he wants us to know. And it's the reality that our money and our hearts and our eternities are likewise always and inseparably linked. Like sweet and salty and left and right and Elsa and Anna. Our hearts and our monies and our eternities also always go together. Where one goes, so go the others. You see, right in chapter 16, verse 1 through 13, as you remember a couple of weeks ago, the whole point of that message and that start from those verses is he's asking us a question in many ways. Namely, what type of money managers are you? Understanding that all we have is the Lord's, understanding that everything we have in our bank accounts and in our houses and our lives is actually ultimately the Lord's, And understanding that we're to use what he's entrusted to us to win eternal friends, i.e. to win people to Jesus, and also to store up for ourselves treasures on heaven. The point of the scripture all the way through is what type of money managers are you? How are you using what God has entrusted to you? And he tells us clearly in verse 13, you simply can't serve both God and money. You have to make a choice. Either you're all in for Jesus and so your heart goes there and your treasures follow. Or you're all in for this world and so your heart and your treasures go there. And all we do generously is give people scraps. We all have to make that choice. The Pharisees in verse 14 immediately make their choice. They ridicule Jesus. You are a joke. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say. You can't serve God in money. Of course you can See, the Pharisees loved money. They loved to have the best seats at the table. They loved to be greeted in the marketplace. They loved to have stuff. They wanted a home as big as possible. The Pharisees loved money and were driven by money. So when Jesus is bringing all this up, they just think it's an absolute joke and ridicule him. Which is why then, from verses 14 through 18... He starts to give them an understanding of the blessing and grace of the law. He's helping them see, listen, God's words and my words, they're here to help you. I'm not trying to mess you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you see how this works. I know I made you. I was there in the beginning. I know how your hearts work. I'm coming alongside you to help you. And having done that, he now in verses 19 through 31, in many ways, lands his message. And does so by helping us see that our hearts and our monies and our eternities are always intrinsically and inseparably linked. We may think they're different, but they're definitely not. Two points in this morning. Number one, the lesson landed We're just going to go through how Jesus lands this teaching at the end of the chapter. And then number two, the lesson applied as we seek to draw from it and understand from it what exactly is he trying to tell us. But really just one hope. The hope that we will see that our money and our hearts and our eternities are always linked. And we wouldn't just see it, but we would heed it 
Because we're not blessed in our hearing. We're blessed in our doing. Point one. The lesson landed. As this lesson lands, we are introduced to two men. A rich man, who we don't know his name. We don't even have the... Well, unfortunately for this man, we don't even know who he was. He's just known as rich. And then we have another man called Lazarus. And their situations on earth could not be more different. Look with me at verses 19 through 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. How unpleasant is that? When you talk about a situation of a have and a have not, this is it. We have a rich man, and the rich man has it all. This rich man is living like a king. Purple was a color of royalty. He is literally dressing himself like a king right down to his underpants. He is giving himself daily to feasting. He wants to eat all he can. He wants to enjoy life. He wants to eat and drink and be merry. He is overwhelmingly wealthy. Even the gate that the that young Lazarus is actually put beside, that word there in the Greek is, is a pylona. And a pylona is the word that is used for an ornamental gate of a palace. So this is a dude that is wealthy. He has got tons of money. He dresses like it. He's one of the people that lives in my type of area at different times. And you see them coming in and they're really nice cars. And they go into their garage that goes up and in they go. And then the garage comes down. I, I don't even know what their faces look like. But that's what this guy's like. He is wealthy. He is stinking rich. And in stark contrast to him is the poor man who named Lazarus in verse 20 to 21. And this man is overwhelmingly poor. He's been laid at the gate, notice. Why laid at the gate? Well, because it would appear he's disabled and sick. This man can't just go around begging He's unable to really get around. So some kind-hearted souls have parked this man outside the gate by this man's bins so he has something to eat. So every day, the rich man eats sumptuously, dregs are put outside, and this man lives off the dregs, the crumbs that may be falling from this rich man's table. And guess what? The wild dogs that are around are living off this man, licking his sores. It's horrible. Don't think here like, you know, your kind little labradoodle that you have in the house. No, these are wild, feral dogs. When I went to the Philippines the first time, I was surprised how many dogs are just roaming the streets. But there are a lot of them. You don't want to walk around with a Mars bar or something. You'll get mobbed. And these dogs, like, you know, they've got three legs and one eye. And it's just a mess. But they come from everywhere. And that's what this man's experiencing. They're aware that you have got sores. And I like licking sores. So I'm going to live around you. This man is living off the rich man as best as he can. The dogs are living off him. It is a horrible, grotesque, have and have not seen. And then we discover that both these men die. And after death, they have very different destinations. Look with me at verse 22 and 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
See, in this death, these men experience a great reversal in their situations, do they not? Daryl Bach, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, death is the great equalizer and sometimes even reverser. Since after death, the one thing that counts is the human heart. And so it is. After death, the one thing that counts is the human heart. Did you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or not? Lazarus, exhibit A, lived a life of extreme poverty. But it would appear somewhere along the line, he has put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And what happens? Well, upon death... He is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He lived a life of poverty, but now he is seen at Abraham's side with feasting, with partying, with pleasures, both now and forevermore. This man is a happy man. Death is the great equalizer, and in this case, it has been the great reverser. An extreme life of poverty, now an eternity of feasting in the heavenly realms. Whereas the rich man... It would appear the rich man is like the Pharisees in verse 14, who were lovers of money and heard all these things and ridiculed him. It would appear that this rich man thinks Jesus is a joke. It would appear that this man, although he's a Jew, which is why he calls him Father Abraham at different times, though this man has no doubt gathered around Moses and the prophets all his life, which is simply the Old Testament, he doesn't believe it and he doesn't want to follow it. How do we know that? Because the fruit of his life is profound stinginess towards the poor. His life has not been transformed by the gospel. He wants to eat and drink and be merry and keep everything for himself. He has no faith in Jesus. So what's the fruit? When he dies, when he is buried, it is hell and heaven, not heaven, that is opened up to him. He goes to eternal torment. What about that as the great reversal? See, some people think that when you die, nothing happens. Some people think that when you die, you get reincarnated. Actually, one of our kids just recently, I won't say who it was, but it was one of the younger ones, which will make, at least give you a relief. But they said, oh, I'm pretty sure I'm coming back as a bird. <laughs> Where that's come from, only knows. But yeah, yeah more, more work needed doing in family devotions, clearly. <laughs> but some people actually think, I think I'm just going to reincarnate and come back with something else. Some people, even Christians, think that when I die, I think I'm probably just going to like fall asleep, maybe. Well, the Bible's clear that, no, you're not going to fall asleep. Immediately upon death, you're going to go somewhere. For the Christian, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. The moment you die, you're going to be at home with the Lord if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's why Jesus himself says to the thief on the cross, having put their faith in him, he says, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He knows as your life comes to an end, this very moment, you will be sitting at the right hand of the Father with me. There will be feasting and joy and parting in the heavenly realms. And for this rich man, having lived his life ridiculing Jesus, refusing to really stand for Jesus in the dot of his life, living it up, eating and drinking and be merry, consumed with himself, unwilling to bow the knee to the Lord and really live for him. The fruit of that life of the dot is now an eternity within the confines of hell. Torment and difficulty. Well, this man, this rich man, 
begins to experience that. And begins then to cry out. And he actually cries out twice. He gives two requests of Abraham that are met with two responses. The first request is a plea for himself. Which you see in verses 24 through 26. Look with me at 24. It says, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. He is now beginning to experience the realities of hell and he is hating it. The very tongue which he gave himself to feasting with each and every day of his life is now in such anguish that he's saying, can Lazarus just come and give me a bit of water for it? I mean, we can't base all our view of hell just on these pictures, but what we're being painted for by Jesus is this is going to be difficult. This is going to be horrendous. And that's what this man is starting to endure in this moment. And so he reaches out to Abraham. Listen, can you send Lazarus down to just cool my tongue? And Abraham responds. But Abraham said, child, verse 25, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. What he's saying to him is, listen, my friend, there is consequences. That's what Moses told us all along. That's what the prophets told us all along. Jesus said it all along. There are consequences. And besides, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you are a great chasm that has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. He's helping him see. Listen, in this moment, it's been fixed. It's too late. There's no plan B. The moment you die, the eternal decision is made. There's no turning back. Kent Hughes says it this way in his excellent commentary on Luke. He says, this great chasm, literally yawning, is unbridgeable. No surge of human sympathy can reach across it. While in the world, the rich man could have reached out to Lazarus at any time. Yet once in eternity... The gulf was now uncrossable. And so it is. It's too late. Once the decision's been made, it is too late. And so he gives this plea for himself and he gets this response from Abraham and he realizes, okay, well, clearly this is my eternal destination. There's nothing I can do. So, uh, okay, well, can you reach out to my family? Which is the second plea, a plea for his brothers. Look at verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This is the first time in the text this rich man actually thinks about anybody else. And his point is, listen, if hell, if this is where I'm going to live for all eternity, I don't want them to live here. Go and tell him, listen, Abraham, get Lazarus. In fact, just bring him back to life, right? Get, bring him back to life. Get him resurrected. Get him back down. Tell my brothers. Because then they'll repent and, and they'll be saved. And that's what I want for them. And Abraham responds, verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He's saying to this man, listen, they have everything they need. They're Jewish. They've grown up around Moses. They've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They have everything we need. They have the prophets that have been screaming for years about the coming of the Messiah. Jesus himself is standing there saying, I am he. They have everything. 
At which point this rich man pushes back and goes, yeah, but, but there's got to be more. Verse 30, and he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. The rich man is appealing, let there be a resurrection. Because if there could just be a resurrection, surely everybody would believe. Eh, no. Abraham responds, verse 31. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And my friends, oh, how true and right Abraham was, was he not? It would not be long after this text was written and examined that Jesus himself, having arrived at Jerusalem, would give his life away as a ransom for many. On the third day would rise again. Over 500 witnesses see it. And what does the general congregation do? Go, eh, nah. No, it ain't enough. No, we need more. It's not going to work. Abraham is right. A resurrection is not going to be enough because our challenge in this life, our problem in this life is not hard evidence. Our problem in this life is hard-heartedness. The evidence for Jesus is overwhelming. The evidence of who God is. Stand outside and look out the door. The evidence for the existence of God is overwhelming. The evidence for Jesus is overwhelming. It's all written by Moses and the prophets. Then Jesus arrives and we have all those indications of who Jesus claimed to be. We have great history, understanding on the resurrection. Our challenge isn't hard evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. Our challenge in life is hard-heartedness because even though the evidence is overwhelming, we still look back and ridicule it. Nope, no, no, nope, nope. I think we just evolved. We just came from nothing. Mm-hmm. Jesus, yeah, no, uh, mm, no, I don't think he existed. Oh, okay, he's a historical figure. Okay, I think he existed, but I'm pretty sure he didn't say that. Nope. The evidence is overwhelming. The problem is lack of evidence. The problem is hard-heartedness. And with that, this great lesson from Jesus concludes. This great lesson on the wisdom of generosity. This great lesson that takes us on a journey, helping us understand, hey, Christians, you are money managers for Jesus. He's entrusted you to finances and treasures to be used for his glory. And he's telling you all this because he loves you and he wants to help you. He wants it to go well for you in the line of eternity. And if you don't think your treasures and your hearts and your eternities are linked, then examine the rich man and Lazarus. They always play a part in the way we live and what that all means. And the problem isn't hard evidence. The problem is hard-heartedness. So what do we do with it? How do we apply this? What difference should this make to our lives? Well, that's my second point, the lesson applied. And just in closing, I want to give us three thoughts as to how I think we can apply Luke chapter 16 to our lives. How we can wisely ensure that we haven't just heard this lesson, but we've heeded it for the glory of God. Three things. Here's the first. Number one, we need to realize, I believe, that the best time for repentance is now. That the best time to put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior is now. See, one of the things that Jesus has emphasized in several of the texts is you never know how long you've actually got. We like to think that we've got plenty of time. 
I'm sure this rich man probably thought exactly the same thing. And then in a moment, gone. Buried. Decision made. James says it this way for us in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I mean, what a humbling verse that is, don't you think? Here's the, here's the divine assessment on your life. Oh, that guy. Yeah, he was like a mist. Um, he sort of appeared for a little while and now he's gone. I mean, that, that's where it's going to be like. Your kids will remember you. Your grandkids will probably remember you. Your great-grandkids, maybe for some of you live really, really old. Your great-great-grandkids probably won't know your name. People after that, they'll be like, who? However we go about it, we are like a mist that manages for a little while and then vanishes. But here's the point. We can make our plans as if we've got tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. But what he's saying is you never know when your time's up, when your heart's going to stop beating, when something's going to happen and your days are gone. See, the reality of Scripture, then, my friends, is that God made us for a relationship with him. Are you aware of that? Your creator designed you with one thing in mind. He wanted to have a wonderful relationship with you. He wanted you to know him. He wanted you to love him. He wanted to be able to care for you and your every need and for you and him to walk around and have wonderful unity together. The challenge is each and every one of us have rejected him and stuck with creation. And then as we get involved in creation and we realize, oh, this seems a bit broken, we actually point the finger at God as if this is your fault. When in reality, it's our fault. We messed it up. We rejected him. We decided I'm going to do something different with my life. I'm going to live for myself. Listen, you've given me your word. Yeah, yeah, it seems quite good. But I've got better ideas. I'm going to do something else. Just recently, I heard from an unbeliever. And they were simply saying, but they didn't agree with what we stand for as Christians. But, but I heard from them that what they did say is, you know what? If everybody did live, though, according to the Ten Commandments, the world would be a great place. Uh-huh. Yes. It's like somebody designed it to work that way. That's the way it was designed. That was the point. But we reject that, don't we? And listen, I am point fingers at you. I did too. For many years of my life, I didn't give a stuff. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, there's consequences for our sin. We're cut off from God in the now, but ultimately we'll be cut off from him for all eternity. And we shouldn't complain at that. If we want to be cut off from him now, if we don't want him now, then we shouldn't be surprised that we're not going to want him there, that he's not going to accept us there. That seems reasonable. That's what eternity is. In some ways, hell is us just getting what we've said we've always wanted, i.e., no God. That's what we'll get. But God, in his grace and mercy, came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told and gave us a plan B, gave us a second chance. And that second chance, his name is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He made it possible by coming and dying in our place, which is what Jesus is on his way to do right here as he writes this. He made it possible by putting our faith in him as our Lord and Savior that we could have life and that in abundance. I chose to do that when I was 20 years old and it changed my life. My friends, I would love it to change your life today. This rich man never made the decision, but Lazarus did. Look at what happened. 
Choose Christ. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and you will be saved. And you never know. You never know just how long in reality you really have. If you go ahead and do that then, like many of us have done in the room, something else we need to realize then from this text, number two. We need to realize that what we do with our money really does have direct and eternal consequences. And that ain't my words. I'm just the messenger. They're the words of Jesus. See, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, this is what Jesus says to the disciples. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, in theme and content, that's the very stuff that Jesus has been talking to us about all the way through Luke chapter 16. He's helping us see, listen, your hearts and your treasures and your eternities, they're all joined together. He tells us directly in Luke chapter 12, exactly what he says in in Matthew 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He wants us to understand that our treasures, what we do with our money and our hearts and our eternities, they're all linked together. And we need to understand that. We need to understand if we're going to say, I love Jesus, and we want to push our hearts towards Jesus, then we need to put our treasures towards Jesus. You see, my friends, here's the reality. A truth all the way through Scripture. The truth before Scripture is that we cannot take it with us. However good your television may be, however good your dog may be, I know, I'm sorry, everybody, I'm not sure they go to heaven. We have tried to change our theology in our house that I think they might, but I'm not sure they will. Your iPods, your iPads, your house, your treasured possession that you've been working on for years, it's not coming. Everything stays here. You can't take it with you. You know, for centuries, they thought they could. Did you know that? Particularly the Egyptians. The Egyptians honestly thought that they would be able to take it with them. So they got buried with stuff. And so the young Egyptian king, Tutankhamun, for example, he died when he was just 17 years old, but he was incredibly wealthy. So he was buried with gold chariots and thousands and thousands of golden artifacts. His coffin was made of gold. He was placed in a golden tomb in a golden labyrinth. And the idea was that surely after death he will take all these things with him. However, when the American explorer Howard Carter discovered the burial chamber in 1922, he discovered that everything was there. A coffin, a skeleton, and a lot of gold stuff. You can't take it with you. That's why you don't see a hearse pulling your stuff behind it. It ain't coming. It's just you in a box. You can't take anything with you. But you can send it on ahead. Which is why Jesus says, Therefore don't store for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What's the point in that? All you're going to be able to do that is enjoy it in the dot that you're living in right now. Instead, store for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is the line of eternity where neither moth and rust destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Where do you want it? In the dot or in the millennia and millennia and millennia to come? 
He's urging us, helping us see, listen, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And when we're generous towards others, the Bible's teaching, that is what it means to store up yourselves treasures in heaven. When we're generous with the church, when we're generous with the lost, when we're generous to people, every single time, God is paying careful attention. And Paul says he is always looking for what can be credited to your account. That's what that means. Where do you want to enjoy it? Here or there? And Jesus makes it clear in verse 13, you cannot serve both God and money. We all have to make a choice. Are we going after this world? Are we going after eternity? We all have a very big decision to make. And my friends, the third part of this puzzle that I think Jesus has been talking to us about all the way through Luke 16. Number three is that we need to realize that these scriptures really are a wonderful source of blessing and grace to us. My friends, we need to understand that. Because I think sometimes we read our Bibles and we look at Jesus and we think, that just sounds too hard and doesn't sound that great. We need to understand he knows us better than ourselves. The cross proves how much he loves us. And what he's trying to do here is say, I love you so much. Please listen to me. This is the way it works. Make your choice. You know, Jesus has talked about this so much all the way through Luke. In Luke chapter 6, for example, he tells us about the man who built his house upon the rock. That man was a man who built his house upon the rock. What did that mean? Well, he heard and applied the word of God in his life. And as a result, when the storms of life came, he was fine. He stood tall and he stood strong because he was built on the word of God. Whereas the other man that was built on the sand, not reading the word of God, not heeding the word of God, when the storms came, he simply got washed away. This word of God is incredible. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I mean, what an offer, don't you think? Read this, heed this word, and you will be profoundly mature as you follow Christ. Everything you need is right here. It's just whether we're going to read it or not. And whether we're going to heed it or not. And apply it to our lives. Listen, I want you to understand. These scriptures really are a wonderful source of blessing and grace to us. They are a treasure. So we need to treasure them. And hear them. And heed them. So knowing that Jesus has our best interests at heart, I want to ask you the question one final time as the conclusion of Luke 16 comes to mind. What type of money manager are you? Understanding that everything that you ultimately have is the Lord's. Understanding that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And understanding that what you do with this money in this life echoes in all eternity. Honestly, before God, what type of money manager are you? We don't own the store. We just work here. We just work here for his good and for his glory and our good. Listen, I want you to know that from my perspective, and I know Brenda would think likewise, you all seem like pretty good money managers to me. 
It's been a joy then to preach through Luke chapter 16, not in any way thinking, oh man, I hope this church gets it because we're really struggling financially. We're not struggling financially in the kindness of God at all. You all seem like really good money managers to me. And the way you give to this church and the way that you give to the Go Forward Fund every year and the way that Brendan and I have the privilege of hearing so many stories at different times. Of, oh man, I was so blessed. We got sick and people arrived with all this food. We were overwhelmed. Just well done. That's generosity. That's a picture of this. This is all being credited to your account. It's a good thing. So I don't want you to hear any of these words from chapter 16 as if say, I wonder if there's a problem here that they're trying to address. It. No, from our perspective, you are profoundly generous people. And I mean that. I think you do real well. But we would be remiss, all of us, to not take the time for each and every one of us to examine this question for ourselves privately, would we not? See, for all of us, our hearts dust over, do they not? I wipe down my TV at different times to make sure I can watch the NRL as best as I can. And then, what? guess what happens? A week later, the dust is back. And you think, when did it come? I don't know. I just wiped it down last week. I think our hearts do that on certain issues as well. We think, I've already addressed that, you know, last year. Oh, if you addressed it last year, it's probably a little dusty by now. And so I want to encourage you, listen, as your pastor, I want to encourage you, take the time this week to examine the question of what type of money manager you, and don't just ask yourself philosophically. See, when we just ask ourselves philosophically, I think we all tend to score quite highly. How, what type of money manager am I? I think, yeah, I think I'm not bad. Don't just ask that question philosophically. Ask it financially. Get your budget out and ask yourself, considering that the Lord's provided all of this, what am I doing with the store? What am I doing with his money? Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, oh, we don't do a budget. Well, I would suggest you start. Why? Because it's not your money, it's God's. And you probably want to work out what you're doing with it. Because it's his. It's his stuff. I really want to encourage you then, minimally, take the time to consider what is coming in to your life all the time. And then soberly and surely ask yourself, okay, Lord, looking at this and the reality that it's all yours, what type of money manager am I? And if and where change is needed, then I want to encourage you to make that change for the glory of God. Do it as worship. And do it aware that right now all we're doing is living in this dot. It's just a dot. My granddad is 101 years old. I don't reckon he's got long left. I hope he has, but I don't think he has. Maybe he lives to 110. That's huge. But what's the point in living for this dot? when we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of millennia to come. Live for that day. Live for that day. And may his grace abound to us all as we do. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your lesson on generosity. I thank you for the way you have put this in your word, not just for those original hearers, but for us. Oh Lord, I pray for each and every member of Sovereign Grace Church. I oh Lord, I pray, would you help us in the midst of our wealth to soberly and intentionally ask ourselves these questions.
and where change is needed. May we make it for your glory and our eternities in mind. And would you smile on us all the more. In Jesus' name, amen.